The following tone is a reference tone of 700 cycles per second recorded at operating level. Set the playback level control so that the tone reads zero on the VU meter. All following tones will be at this level. Ten thousand cycles. Thirty thousand cycles. Welcome back to the British Invasion Exchange. Justin and Chris here with you for another week, and this week at the Metal Exchange, we do something a little bit different. Um, we're going back to 1967. We're talking about the monkeys, and um, I never thought I would be doing this. So I, I want to thank you, Chris, and uh, ask you how your week was and how you're doing, bud. I'm doing good. I got to see uh, Unleash the Archers and Aether Realm and Seven Kingdoms uh, a couple nights ago, which um, was a badly needed metal show in my life. First time in over two years, and um, all three bands put on a great show, and it was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, only good things. Um, Let's hope it's not the um, the last show for a while because the way things are trending, <laughs> I expect a few cancellations coming up. Unfortunately, yeah. All right. Well, anything, any, uh, listen to anything good this week other than the show? Um, uh, just a couple of new singles, one of which came out just today, um, and that one being uh, Star One has released their uh, third, te- you know, I guess you call it a teaser, uh, for their upcoming album Revel in Time, which is coming out next year. But uh, they released a track called Prescient, which um, features uh, Michael Mills and Ross Jennings of Haken. So, uh um, I didn't really get a chance to listen to it yet. It just came out today, but I plan on giving it a listen before uh, our next podcast episode. And, and uh, apparently Ronnie Atkins is coming out with another solo album that uh, it's going to come out next year. And uh, the first single from that, um, Unsung Heroes, came out. And that album is going to be called Make It Count. Um, so uh, he's keeping busy, which is nice to see. Yeah, it sounds uh, like but, Pretty Maze might be on hiatus for a bit because he's releasing solo material fast and furiously, it seems. Yeah, I mean, I'm just guessing that everybody's kind of just, you know, doing their own thing because of the pandemic and Rod, Ronnie's health. But, uh, yeah, at least he's uh, he's producing some some material in the meantime for us to, to listen to. I thought his, uh, his first solo album was very good. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I actually have a pair of things I wanted to talk about as well. The first was a new song from Eskimo Callboy called Pump It. And for those that haven't heard this band, I really don't know how to describe them. They're a German band. Some say they're metalcore. Some say they're electronic core. I don't know what you would call them other than just a lot of fun. And um, I'm words don't do this song justice. The video is quite unlike anything I've seen probably in 30 years. So um, definitely go out of your way to check that out. I'll certainly post that during the week. They're doing a U.S. tour next year. Um, to say I am curious, I think, is an understatement. I feel like that would be a really fun live show. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, the very 
little that I've heard from them, which has really been like two songs. Um, it just seems like something that would be, that would translate well live and just be kind of a fun kind of dancey kind of metal concert. If, if that makes any sense, it, it doesn't, but yet that's exactly how I would describe them. So <laughs> I think it makes, I think it makes perfect sense. Um, the other, the other thing I wanted to mention was the single from Nocturna, uh, I believe they're an Italian band. The song is called Daughters of the Night. And it's basically, um, I guess we'll call it like a gothic symphonic power metal band featuring the main songwriter from Frozen Crown and Volturian. Uh, it, it basically, it's like two lead singers, one doing more of a clean style, the other one doing more like operatic vocals. And to me, it just screams like, if Nightwish and Powerwolf somehow had a marriage, this is kind of what it is. And I thought the song was really, really cool. I look forward to hearing the rest of the album. Yeah, I actually grabbed that track today, but did not have a chance to listen to it. But um, I really like the first uh, the first track that they released um, from that album called New Evil. We may have mentioned it um, previously. Um, so uh, I, I'm looking forward to hearing the the whole album because that first uh that first single was was very good yeah i i i I agree this one i thought was even better so that being said i think the album is going to be a lot of fun and i look forward to that next year um but let's get to the reason why we are here today which is obviously uh both to celebrate and and mourn i guess the 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 life of of of, uh mr peter nesmith who at the end michael Michael nesmith who at this point for those that are, you know, strictly metal fans, this is going to be a different episode for you guys. Um, the reason I say that is the Monkees are one of the most fascinating bands from that mid to late 60s uh, era for so many reasons. And, and we'll certainly dive deep into those. Um, but your choice of an album this week was obviously timely with Nesmith's passing. And the fact that you saw them in concert, you know, what, a month or two ago? So it's, it's, it's obviously fresh in your mind. And, and to say nothing of the fact that you've been a lifelong fan of this band, um, ever since I've known you, like, right? We were going back over 20 years at this point. And I remember you talking about these guys vividly, um, you know, 25 years ago. So, uh, before I guess we get into it, why did you choose this album? This is their fourth album, as, as I had mentioned from 1967. Why this one as opposed to any of the others? Uh, well, I mean, I had a, my, my two choices would have been between this and headquarters, which was the album that preceded it. And, um, honestly, the reason I I, I did a little research just to see like what people kind of generally regard as the monkey's best album. And it really came like oftentimes comes down to these two. And I think a big part of it is because, um, the first two albums, The Monkees and More of the Monkees, uh, very clever um, <laughs> marketing. But, um, I mean, they were basically used as soundtracks to the TV show. And when the second album was released, um, the the producers kind of rushed it out. And the band wasn't even aware that the album was released. And they actually had to send somebody to a record store to buy it so that they could hear it in its final form and they were not happy about it. And what would happen after that is that they would end up um, cutting ties with the, uh, the main producer um, who was pretty much the, the kind of the brain behind the whole monkeys 
you know, project from when I first started. Um, but just the, the whole thing with him kind of taking control of this band that saw themselves more as just actors being asked to sing songs written by other people. And especially Mike Nesmith and, and Peter Tork, who were, were musicians when they joined the monkeys, whereas Mickey Dolans and Davy Jones were, were actors, either TV actors or stage actors who just were happy to, you know, kind of do what they were told and collect the paycheck. But I think that Michael and Peter kind of pulled them into this, like we're artists, we should be treated as such. And so when, um, when it was time for them to make, their third album headquarters. I believe that they were in the process of starting to make it when um, Don Kirshner was kind of sent packing. And at that point they had decided that the entire band wanted to play the entire album with their, like them playing the instruments, um, which was not what was done the first two albums. And they kind of went back with, with this Pisces album, they kind of went back to a little bit of the older uh, way of doing things. I think that it was a very difficult time recording headquarters because they, they were just, you know, n- new at it. And, and, you know, um, I think it was just very, uh, just taxing. So they kind of went back to, um, what brought them to the dance. And I think that some of the, my personal favorite, um, monkey songs came from the, this album and, um, it was kind of tough for me to choose, but I think I, I slightly, slightly edge this one ahead of headquarters just because the, I think that, um, I think that the, the sum of its parts are, are greater than the whole, as they say. And, um, and, and I just, the songs that I personally really like, um, some of my favorite monkey songs are, are from this album. So nice. I, it's funny. I, my first exposure to the band was in the mid eighties as a really, 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 really young kid watching the show in syndication, which kind of had a revival back in, I think, like 86 or 87, when, again, I'm talking about I was a four or five-year-old at this point, but I, I remember watching the show um, as a kid, and obviously now with the with the benefit of hindsight, I can appreciate what I was watching, but at the time I had no idea. I just remembered the name and then obviously the one or two songs I would hear on um, local oldies radio. You'll remember CBS FM 101.1 here, uh, obviously in New York City. They played 50s, 60s, and 70s uh, popular music. And, you know, you would hear the Rolling Stones and you would hear the Beatles constantly. And every so often they would throw out a monkey's tune. Um, so when I went back and I listened to this album, I think I actually recognized one, maybe two songs off of it, if memory serves. Um, didn't know them well, but just knew enough about them to, 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 you know, kind of, I guess, ref- refresh something in the, in the recesses of my, <laughs> of my memory bank. But I, I always thought of them as kind of a joke because to your point, there were two real musicians in the band. The other two guys were kind of just brought in and, and found their way. And even though they obviously are credited with playing uh, the tracks on this album, they also had a lot of help, right? They had, uh, you, know, I, you know, Eddie Hoff or Eddie Hoff playing drums. Um, 
they had um, Bill Chadwick, who does uh, acoustic guitar on one or two tracks. Um, the bass player, who I have quite a bit to say, um, the name escapes me. I think his name was uh, – oh, the name escapes me. It'll come back to me. But the bass player on this album was a session guy, not not part of the actual band. And when you put it all together, a lot of these tracks actually have quite a bit of, of instrumentation and, and, and other instruments other than your main rock and roll instruments. Um, so I, I didn't, I was, I, I made a concerted effort this week when I listened to the album and I listened to it, I think no less than a half dozen times, but the first five times I listened to it, I made a point of not doing any research. I just wanted to have an unembellished, um, uh, uh, an opinion of this album that it wasn't, um, influenced by anything that I read or anything that I saw online. So I made a point of listening to it. And then for the final listen, I started researching and seeing what this was all about and, and how it was recorded and everything else. And I think that having that, having played it so many times prior to, I had already formed my opinions and it was really just kind of doing my own homework, if you will, when I, when I, when I went back for that final listen um, earlier today. Um, fascinating stuff, but I go back to the fact that I kind of thought they were a joke band, but there's some real music on here, which was refreshing because it was not what I was expecting. Yeah. Um, I mean, to your point, like they, they were created to, they were created to be a television show about a band and it turned into a band that happened to have a television show. And, um, I think that a lot of critics, um, really didn't like the fact that they were put together to basically prefab. They were called the prefab four, which was a takeoff on the fab four, which is what the Beatles nickname. Um, and I think that the, the success of these albums that the first uh, four albums, especially which all hit uh, number one and sold millions of records, it, it, it pissed off these, these old school people that, that, that felt this is not how we may, you know, how music is made. But I mean, you couldn't take anything away from, I think the, at least in the early days, the, the vocals, the different vocal stylings of each of the band members, but the fact that they were kind of bringing in like this, this unbelievable, um, roster of songwriters it would be like you know today having all of the best songwriters come in and, and write an album a rock album for a band um well to be honest with you what i compare it to is kind of like that late 90s boy band craze where they i mean those guys were not by and large writing their songs or whatever you whatever you know whatever performance art they were they were creating you had other people coming in and writing it but you basically had like five figureheads or four figureheads in a quote-unquote band that were performing songs that were given to them which is kind of what they were doing here right you had like these hired guns for the most part that were performing or 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 you know like i don't know putting putting on the show but musically for for songs that were kind of like tailor-made for 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 their vocals and their talents and whatnot so it's kind of interesting how it comes together because it's like to your point, the complete antithesis of what we expect today, where half the genius of the band is the songwriters that are playing the instruments. Yeah. And I think like I've heard people say that the monkeys were the first boy band in, in a lot of ways. I mean, not musically, uh, stylistically, because this is really pretty much just pop rock with, um, I, I think some of Mike Nesmith's, um, 
contributions definitely lean towards country rock. And it's funny because like years later, th- those are the songs that I ended up really liking um, the most were those like those real like country rock Nesmith tunes. Um, even some of the, the songs that never like ended up on an album and came out on like um, rarity compilations and things like that. But um, yeah, it's, I'm almost like, it's almost daunting for me to talk about this band because there's so like, for me, there's so much to say. And, and the same as you, like I, the, the reason that I became a fan of this band was because, you know, my cousin, Mary, who's six years older than me, um, she got caught up in the, in the eighties, you know, the, the eighties, the kind of re, the re, uh, re, I, I don't know what you'd call it. The re, uh, almost like a reboot in, in many ways. Yeah, Not really. Rebirth. But, yeah. Rebirth. There you go. A renaissance. But, um, you know, the band hadn't released any album since 1970 and the TV show was only on there for, for two seasons. And, um, for whatever reason, MTV, I guess for the, you know, the anniversary of the band, I guess it had been in 20 years, they started rerunning all of the, the, the TV show episodes and it, it brought a whole new generation of people aware of, of the band and all the great songs. And my cousin got completely swept up in it. And as a kid, you know, I'm four or five years old and I don't have any older siblings. So she's like kind of my like hero. She's my, my idol. Like I want to do everything that she did. She was like the one who got me into Nintendo and God knows where that's taken me. And and (laughs) so, so many of the things that I grew up to love were because of of her influence. And so she was just obsessed. Um, you know, like went to go like meet Davy Jones when he was signing his, his, uh, his autobiography and, 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 you know, all that stuff. And she had won a con a contest on the radio and got, the entire collection of their vinyl, like their entire vinyl discography, which she already owned. So she gave me the old set. And that was like my first, my first set of any sort of albums were the entire monkeys discography on vinyl. Um, That was my introduction to music. I mean, outside of hearing songs on the radio, this was the first time I ever got an, a band's entire album or library just dropped on me and so i knew by the time i was 10 years old i knew every single song inside and out to the point where like i would go to grade school and put the cassette tapes in the cassette players at school and listen to the monkeys like i mean this was the reason that i i became a fan of music like this and so for anybody wondering like why the hell are we talking about the monkeys on a metal podcast this is why because I, this kind of was the foundation for me loving music and I've seen them live and in, uh, three different trio formations or two or, uh, yeah, no, two different trio formations and one duo formation, never all four at the same time, uh, due to, I mean, Mike Nesmith just was, not part of the band for a really long time. And it wasn't until after Davey passed away that he would kind of start touring with them again. I think my favorite one, honestly, was seeing uh, Mike for the first time play with Peter and Mickey um, for in the front row dead center at the Beacon Theater it was an experience to say the least. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it's funny. And I found myself defending 
um, this band <laughs> for my entire life when people would be like, how the hell is, is your favorite band, the monkeys? And, uh, but I mean, say what you will about all of it. And it's really, like you said, one of the most fascinating band stories ever, but, um, the songs are great. Like, I mean, maybe there's nostalgia that kind of drives my love, but I mean, I think that I can be, um, honest enough to say that I think that like, these are just, these are good songs. Um, not everything might not be for everyone, but, um, I'm really, really excited to kind of hear what your thoughts were because, um, I, this has got to be the first time you've ever really sat down and listened to a Monkees album, right? It, it is. And, and I'll say this, and I think this is the perfect way to set the table. I grew up in a Beatles household. My mom was Well, so Beatles. did I. Right, but, but, but I say that <laughs> insofar as I know every Beatles song, right? Like I've heard them all. Obviously, I know some better than others. So when I hear this, obviously, I kind of evaluate it through that lens and I'm also evaluating it through the lens of somebody that listens to destruction right so when 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 I listen to this um it's it's through a very unique lens it's it's the Beatles upbringing with I mean with with other artists obviously there, in there as well that my father was into um the Beach Boys and the Ventures and stuff like that but listening to th- that stuff and then obviously knowing what I listen to now this was a trip in a number of ways. And I think it's worth noting, I'm going to not say this reminds me of the Beatles every song because that's not, first of all, it doesn't. Second of all, it's just, it, it would get old after a while. I hear other things and I'll get to that. But what's interesting to me is that um, this particular album, and I'll just give a general statement, starts off one way and kind of after about three songs takes a really divergent turn into the psychedelic realm, which I was not expecting. Fascinating. And the reason I say that is because I was expecting basically 1964 Beatles throughout, throughout the entire album. This took a right turn and almost went down the Pink Floyd rabbit hole, which I was not expecting. Yeah. I I mean, it's well said. And I mean, the truth is, is that like any band that that's going to be in this vein at this time is going to be influenced by the Beatles. And as a matter of fact, you know, the monkeys were invited by the Beatles to like come to England and hang out. And supposedly the Beatles taught the monkeys about like drugs or whatever, probably like not like heroin or anything, but you know, like taught them about like pot and acid and stuff like that. And there's some really epic tales of, and photos of like Mickey Dolan's hanging out with Paul McCartney, which to me is like so mind blowing. Um, so, I mean, even if you were to make any sort of, uh, you know, comparisons to the Beatles, it would be completely understandable. But, um, I think that <laughs> Mickey Dolan's, uh, discovery of the Moog synthesizer definitely added to that psycho psychedelic, uh, that aspect to it. Um, because as you hear most prominently in um, in Star Collector and uh, Daily Nightly, like that, that, and I'll tell you some fun stories as we go through each track. Um, I did, I actually did some research myself. Um, read the, I have the um, one of the re-releases from the mid '90s. I basically all my Monkey CDs are from the, around that time, and they, you know were all remastered and had a bunch of bonus tracks and each album had very extensive liner notes. And so I read every liner note that I owned, like just kind of 
you know, knowing that there's probably little things that I may have forgotten or just didn't even know in the first place. And there's a lot, lots of fun stories. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, to me, like, I feel like after the first two monkeys albums, which were really just straight up bubblegum pop rock, there is no there's no real focus on any of the the albums that come out after this because it's almost like each band member wants their songs it's kind of like in wrestling when they say i gotta get my shit in like it's it's kind of that way where it's like and and it was especially coming from mike and and peter because they were the the, you know actual tried and true musicians they really wanted the monkeys to be a serious band and, and they wanted to push their stuff in there and 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 Mickey, I think, ended up becoming just an, a, an incredible uh, musician after just coming in as like a he was like a, a TV child actor, um, and he and a lot of uh, I think um, it was either Mike or, or Peter did an interview and just said that Mickey doesn't even know how good Mickey is, and him and Davy, I think, in the old day in their original days were the the voice of the monkeys, but I think as you reach this point now a little bit further on the other guys are trying to, you know, Mike was especially um, strong willed about like the monkeys going in the direction that he wanted to go. And it was just a lot of, a lot of egos, a lot of butting heads. And so like, um, this is probably the, the last album that was like a real band effort before it really started to just go into kind of each band doing a solo, like, handful of songs and i know like the the last album with um with uh, just mike mike davy and, and mickey after peter had left uh it was called the monkeys present and the original idea was that each it would be two vinyl records and each side would be one monkeys songs kind of like what kiss would do years later um that was the idea but then peter had left the band so it ended up just being like a, a one you know one uh, album thing but it basically was these guys were going in the studio with their own musicians and doing each song kind of reminds me of like how halloween was uh towards the end of the kiss era where it's just like let me get in do my songs and get out and you know not we're not collaborating we're just putting and so long story short there's not a lot of cohesion i think because there's just a lot of it's just you know everybody kind of doing their own thing but to me, like at the time when I was listening to this, I just figured that that's how it was done. Like I thought you just you just went in there and made a bunch of songs, and if none of them connected with each other, who cares? As long as the songs are good. Well, that's what happens, right? Because we have country, we have psychedelic rock, we have bubblegum pop, we have a little bit of everything on here. So, um, with <laughs> having now set the stage for nearly half an hour, let's jump into it. Um, I, I think that Salesman, the opening track, is is a good song, but certainly not representative of the album. And, and it goes back to what I said about the first three tracks really being so dissimilar. Um, you know, it, it's funny. This, this, what, this is the track that I think I kind of expected to hear a lot more of as I'm listening to the album, just in terms of the way the song was constructed. And uh, Michael Nesmith does a fantastic job with the vocals here. I think the song's a little bit repetitive, but that's what, you know, but that's what pop music was then. And it's interesting because as I was looking at the track listing, Every song is about two minutes and 40 seconds, give or take a couple of seconds. But it was like a, it was formulaic in that sense. And even when they would deviate from this pop rock 
I don't want to say genre, but the, the songs that were not as uh, derivative of, of Salesman, they all followed the same track length, right? Like it, it, you, it was the same thing over and over. And it was like they were trying to get that radio hit with every one of these songs with the exception of one or two. But for the most part, every song is in that like two minutes, two minutes and 45 second range and, and just blast it out. And hopefully it gets on the radio and something will stick because the, like I said, this is, this is the first track, not my favorite track on the album. Um, it, it, to me, it would get a lot better as we, as we get a little deeper into it. Yeah. Um, I thought it was, you know, I thought it was an interesting way to kind of, uh, kick things off. It just kind of gets you right. Um, it just gets like things going. I, as the years would go on, I, when I was a kid, Peter was always my favorite monkey, but I think now, I think Mike, just because of his unique vocals and kind of the way he, he ties, he kind of brings this country twang into the the rock and roll that I just love. Um, this isn't probably not one of my favorite songs that he does sing for the monkeys, but I think it's like a good serviceable opener and it's just it's kind of funny because then you just kind of like go into the the next track is it's like a totally different type of song like it's just a, a mike nesmith song versus a davy jones song is like night and day if you really uh if you really like deep, you know dive deep into these 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 songs just how oh, totally different. i mean she and that, and that next tr- that next track being she hangs out this to me had like a beach boys feel to it and had like a surf rock vibe going on throughout the whole thing um there's a bass trombone here. I didn't even know that that was a thing. Um, but yet it's like kind of heavily employed here throughout like the bottom layer of the song. Um, I don't, you know, it's funny. I'm not sure that people think of Nesmith as, as the singer. I think people often think of like Davy Jones as like the singer of the band, even though obviously they all sang, but right. having heard these two tracks back to back, I actually prefer Nesmith's voice myself. Um, so I found that to be interesting. This, this particular track I thought was a very easy listen. Um, just in terms of like, just, just an easy listen is the way I would describe it. Uh, not, not as much going on as you'd hear in some of the later tracks, but a good, a good second track on the album. And, 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 um, I think it even gets better with the next track, but I, what are your thoughts on She Hangs Out? I think it's a very like sign of the times kind of song. Like this song sounds like it came out in 1967. It, it sounds like you're going to a, a dance with your bell bottoms and your and your college shirt and and you're you know probably of a mullet and and you know it, it's um it's kind of like they the the songs that were that would end up being written for Davy because Davy probably was the least um he was the least used to being able to write a song. Um, and it would be a while before he'd even have a songwriting credit. So a lot of the songs written for him were kind of this more of a bubblegum kind of poppy kind of thing that I think, you know, Davy Jones was, was a teen heartthrob at the time. So these are the kind of songs I think that they're aiming for that, um, that audience, the, you know, the, the screaming, you know, girls that you hear when you hear a live Beatles performance and it's just a sea of, female screaming voices and and i've heard monkeys recordings from the same times it's the same thing it's just a wall of of screaming it's 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 kind of amazing like uh but yeah um especially when the band first started like you said like people think of davy jones and they think of mickey dolan's and their two biggest songs i'm a believer was sung by mickey and daydream believer was sung by davy i think those are the the songs people most think about but um 
Yeah, uh, I've I always was a, a fan, and especially now I'm just a big fan of of Nesmith's uh, vocal styling, but also his songwriting as well. But um, you know, these are this this song she hangs out is it makes me think of the kind of the vibe of the TV show. Um, it kind of has that kind of um, just well, kind of fun, like light. It's you know, funny. I, was, I, I put on an episode today on YouTube just because they're all on there and they're at the beach. And I think they're actually rescuing a princess or something like that. I mean, it was, it's out there, but this song is like perfect for that setting. And I, I completely understand why they would use that. Like, it's just, it's just a nice, I don't know. It, it, you, to your point, it does remind me of the TV show. Whereas the next track, The Door into Summer, you talk about Nesmith, uh, Nesmith's vocals. It's on full display here, but even this song has a phenomenal guitar intro and is a bit more of a folkier tune. Um, one thing that popped here for me with the backing vocals and the choruses and throughout the end of the track, really, really, really good. And, and I know that a lot of the times I'll reference bands that came before a particular artist that we discussed, but here I'm actually going to mention a lot of things that come after the fact. To me, this was like a modern, like a, a precursor to modern day collective soul. That's interesting. <laughs> I like, I like that, uh, that, that, um, descriptor. Um, this is, this turned into like one of my favorite songs on the album. Um, you know, Years later, it's it's funny because when you've listened to a band for this long, and for me, it's been a, almost thirty five years. Probably, you go through like these phases of of what your favorite songs were. Because what my favorite song when I was eight <laughs> is different from what my favorite song is when I'm thirty nine. Um, and it, so, this is one of those songs that through the years, I think, especially also hearing it performed live and hearing uh, Mike and Mickey sing it together and do that, um, that harmonization. Um, I, I, I appreciate the song a lot and it's just, um, it's just kind of like a, a pretty, pretty just chill little tune, but um, I, I like this one a lot and I'm glad to hear that you did as well. Yeah. I, I thought it was the, definitely the best of the three um, without a doubt. And, and it's the one that I kind of look forward to listening to the most in that first like quarter of the album. Um, to me, things kind of pick up with the next track, Love is Only Sleeping. Before I get into it, and I have some strong thoughts here, what are you what are your thoughts on this one? Um, I like this one a lot too, again, because it's uh, you know, if Mike is singing, it kind of adds to my my enjoyment of the song. Um but uh yeah, it's like two songs in a row sung by Mike Nesmith that I don't think sound anything alike. Um, it, it might as well be a different band. And again, it's because I think it's a lot of it is because there's so many different songwriters that are involved. Um, you know, the, the, the people who wrote love is only sleeping or not the same people who wrote the door into summer. But, um, I like this song too. I think it, it again, really shows, um, you know, how good of a, a vocalist that Mike Nesmith is. And, you know, he sings on uh, five, I think five tracks on, on this album. When you, when you kind of compare that to the monkeys uh, debut album, the self-titled debut where he sang on two tracks um, and the whole rest of the album was Mickey and Davey and Peter didn't sing at all. Um, nor does he on this album for that matter. But um, it just goes to show you like where his influence 
is expanding and um and it also shows that like you know these songs that i presume he had a hand in choosing were you know he was a good uh source for for choosing which songs to play as well so um what did you think of this song this riff that starts the song every time i heard it i said to myself i know this riff and i thought about it and i said to myself i think this is where kiss got war machine from Every single time I hear that riff, I say to myself, this is like plagiarism, right? We knew Paul Stanley was a huge fan. He had a lot of kind words to say when Nesmith passed away. I know that that's a Gene Simmons riff, but like 15 years prior to War Machine being written, the Monkees wrote this song. It's the same riff. I mean, like it to me, it's uncanny, Um, but it's such an iconic riff that like I didn't care. It was just really cool to hear it in the mid, you know, the mid sixties. Uh, really, really awesome. Um, I love the different sound effects that are employed by Bill Chadwick. I don't really know what's going on at the end, second half of the song, but I loved it. This to me is definitely in contention for song of the week. And I just, I, I, I was blown away by this song. I think it was ahead of its time. So there's a, an interesting story that kind of goes along with this song. Um, and uh, definitely worth, mentioning but um so the song was not supposed to be on the album at all this isn't a time where and we're going to talk about a little bit about um one of the singles that was released at the same time but a lot of times a band would would release a single and the track would not appear on a full-length album so because they wanted you to go out and buy a 45 and uh and 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 in this case this was supposed to be a single what happened was (laughs) Um, a month before the album was supposed to come out, there was a manufacturing foul up and it caused the record label to rethink what they wanted to do. So they decided to use what would be the B side daydream believer to be the new single. And it ended up being arguably the biggest monkey song ever. That's right. Um, and so daydream believer was supposed to be on this album and they decided that, with the success of the single that they can kind of push it off until the following album. So at least they'd know that they had a surefire hit on that next album. And I'm sure it probably helped move that album. Cause that was the first, that was the first monkeys album that did not uh, hit number one. I think it might've peaked at two or three and that kind of marked the, the decline of the band or where it was starting. But um, yeah, so um so what would end up happening is Daydream Believer would be released as a single. Uh, Going Down would be the B-side um, for that single, which was also originally supposed to be on this album. And to this day was never actually released on a, a Monkees album that wasn't a, a compilation, uh, which is interesting because it's a very um, well-known song that was used on Breaking Bad and um, the band played live all the time and Mickey would somehow just get through that that verbal like just it's it's wild it's this just bluesy jazzy it's a scat um, song yeah but yeah we'll get there yeah talk about like another song that doesn't fit with the rest of uh things but that's kind of what the 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 legacy of love is only sleeping is that it it led to daydream believer being released as a single so i I guess sometimes it was a happy accident as bob ross would say right it's just (laughs) he kind of fell into it with that but to your point, Daydream Believer wound up becoming 
I, I think their biggest song and, and it's just fascinating. I, I wonder how things would have changed if they would have done it in reverse because Daydream Believer would have kind of been buried on, on this potentially. And, and this track, which I love, would have been kind of put, you know, thrust into the forefront of, of, of the mainstream consciousness. Yeah. And who knows? Like, it, 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 I don't, I mean, personally, I don't know that it would have been a, a commercial, not, not even close to as a commercial success as, as Daydream Believer. And I think that they recognize that, you know, once they had a chance to kind of correct course, um, they knew that they had a hit. And it was, I mean, it, pr- it pretty much was like the, along with Pleasant Valley Sunday, probably the, the last of the really big monkeys hits that were like, ra- you know, real r- popular radio songs and songs that you still hear on any, you know, oldies or classic rock station to this day. Well, one song that you're not hearing on any oldies or classic rock station is Cuddly Toy. Um, when I heard this track, I was certain, I mean, absolutely certain that this had to have just been like a Sergeant Pepper, like B side that had come out like after Sergeant Pepper. What I was shocked to find out is that Sergeant Pepper was actually released in May, whereas this track was recorded in April. So unless there was like some overlap there that I'm not aware of, I was simply shocked by the quirkiness of this tomb. Now, I'll say this. It is catchy. It stays in your head. And I've been singing it to myself all week. (laughs) It has this really odd charm to it. And it was, it's just oddly charming. Um, the best part of the song to me though is, is the keyboards, which actually reminds me of Piano Lessons, which is a song from Porcupine Tree's Stupid Dream album. Very repetitive, but much like that song where the keys are just really, really catchy and kind of drive the tune. It's the same thing here. It was really, really interesting. I won't say it's my favorite song on the album. I won't say it's in the top half of favorite songs on the album, but it, it was it was definitely a trip to say the least. Well, it, I'm glad that you mentioned Sgt. Pepper because, um, so, you know, this is a time where they were just, the Monkees released three albums this year in, the, in 1967. Um, and the previous album headquarters came out the week before Sergeant Pepper and it debuted at number one. And then the following week, Sergeant Pepper (laughs) came out and knocked them out. And, um, for the next 11 weeks, it would be Sergeant Pepper, the Beatles, Sergeant Pepper and the monkeys headquarters one and two for 11 straight weeks. Um, I mean, just to go, just to show you that, like at the time, like the monkeys were second only to the Beatles. I mean, no one was topping the Beatles at this time, but the monkeys were the, the U S equivalent of the Beatles, but in a just totally different kind of, uh, you know, different way, the way that the band was, was, was put together. And, but I mean, the, well, the think music, about this. before the Beatles hit, they had been playing together in clubs and did like thousands of shows. I mean, they were a well-oiled machine with two of the greatest songwriters of all time. And here you have the same construct, but songs being written for people that don't even play instruments. I mean, it's like, it's just crazy when you look at the dichotomy between the two bands. It's, it's like night and day. And that's why, under, that's why I understand why people crapped on them and still do. I mean, the, the people, they're not, you know, people say they're not a band or whatever. And, uh, you know, whatever. Like, I kind of got over that thing. Like, that, I got over that around the same time I got over the wrestling is fake argument. But, um, I mean, you can't argue with success. And, and I mean, th- to be like neck and neck with, with the Beatles like that is, is, I think, very impressive. And so, uh, 
Yeah. And, and this song is, you know, vintage Davy Jones. Like it's one of my more favorite songs that Davy sings. Cause a lot of, I find that like a lot of the Davy songs are very like saccharine, especially the older ones. They're just like a little bit, you know, uh, too cute by half. Um, but, uh, this is one of the ones I really like my aunt, my aunt Nan, love this song for some reason. I never really understood why, maybe because I would sing it when I was a kid, but I remember seeing the monkeys. One of the times I saw them live was with her and she was so excited when they played that song. So, uh, shout out to Aunt Nan. Um, (laughs) (laughs) she's probably not listening, but, uh, that I always think of her when I hear that song. Nice. Um, what do you think of the next track words, which really takes things in another direction? Yeah, I think this is a really cool song. Very, um, very kind of haunting. Um, there's that just, I, I get a kick out of anytime I hear that kind of, um, that Doors style, uh, like organ sound. Um, the Hammond organ. Is, yeah. And, and this is really the only, um, musical vocal output from Peter Torka. He does the kind of the, the mirrored vocals, uh, to Mickey, which I think is, it, it sounds so cool. Um, I don't think I really liked this song that much as a kid, probably because it felt kind of dark. But as an adult, I appreciate it a lot. I think it's, um, I think it's a really cool tune. This this is the one song I think I remember hearing as a kid. Uh, when I said there was one, this was actually it. Very very psychedelic Pink Floydish intro. Um, love the chorus. I think that it reminds me a lot of the way that metal bands today kind of go up the musical ladder as they sing the song. And I think it was a nice touch here. What really stood out to me, and I, I forgot his name earlier. His name is Chip Douglas, and he plays the bass lines on this particular track and most tracks on this album. The bass lines are fantastic. And I was actually like disappointed to find out that he's not he wasn't a member of the band. Because again, the first five times I listened to this, I didn't realize that one of the you know, four main monkeys were not playing bass on this album. And it was actually kind of like depressed me a little bit because I just thought the bass playing on the entire album was great. This particular track kind of reminds me as like a real precursor to the late sixties, mamas and the papas, California dreaming. Like to me, this is like, there's no California dreaming if there's no monkeys playing words. Right. Well, so Chip Douglas was in the, the turtles and they had a huge hit with happy together. And Mike Nesmith convinced him. Mike Nesmith wanted a producer that was kind of in his pocket that he knew he could work with. So he chose Chip Douglas um, personally to come on and, and kind of talked him into like ditching the turtles, you know, one, one zoo animal to another, I guess. Um, <laughs> and so that's kind of how he got involved. I mean, I think on the, on headquarters when the band was all playing their own instruments. I think Peter was handling the, the bass guitar, but I, I guess when you have your, the guy who's producing it um, can just sit there and kind of play. I, I, I think the going back to salesman, I just think the baseline in that song is, is really noticeable. You wouldn't think of, of like a song from like 19 late 1960s pop rock to have like this memorable baseline, but it does. So you're um, absolutely right. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned him because I, I I think that um, he definitely deserves some some praise. Um, he he had produced Headquarters before this as well, um, and uh, and I think he, yeah he would go on to uh, produce uh, the next album as well, The Birds and the Bees and the Monkeys. But um, 
one of the things you you learn about the monkeys when you really start diving into stuff is that like a lot of these songs were like written already and like because they're they're throwing so many things at the wall for this tv show to see like what's gonna stick uh words was a song that was written like uh, there was a completely different version of it actually um that would come out later on one of their um missing links compilation albums but they were just like all right like for some reason sometimes there's like a right time for the song to be released so they went back and recorded a new version of it but um you know it's there were so many songs just written and tried out at certain times and and stuff that would just end up in the back pocket for a little while until it was ready. I mean, there's albums from like the fifth and sixth studio albums that were written during the first and second albums released, but just never saw the light of day. And and as the band was kind of winding down, it was easier to just kind of churn out already written songs than have to come up with new material. So, um, but I think this, that words fits this album. Um, and kind of, uh, I think it also is kind of a, a nice little like um, break in between this Davy Jones kind of a little bit more like happy go lucky kind of songs, I guess. Um, I, I think Hard to Believe is another one of the best uh, Davy songs for me. I, I I think it's a little it's it's not as cheesy as a lot of the other ones, and um, I, I actually like the song a lot. It's probably my favorite, uh, probably my favorite Davy song on the album. Nice. I, I, I can totally see why. I think it, I think it's very, very good. Before I delve deep into Hard to Believe, the next track, I'm going to give you the floor and give you the first crack at this one because I have some pretty strong thoughts. Yeah, well, that's what I was just um, talking about. Was, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, because um, like, so you have these two Davy tracks with the words in, in the middle, and, and so I think having kind of a darker tune in between. Gotcha, um, gotcha, I understood. Is, yeah, I, I think it makes for a good di- dichotomy. I thought this was a real dud. I what, What's <laughs> interesting to me is you got some French horn and flugelhorn here, and although I'm a big, big fan of both, um, this was the last song apparently added to the album, and I think that they could have left it off. What I didn't love here, I thought it was too much strings, and I thought that it actually reminded me more of like 70s disco, and I kept hearing... I, I, not that it's like a not 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 as clear as as I did with the with War Machine by Kiss that I spoke about earlier, but I kept hearing in the back of my head Donna Summer's Last Dance, which is one of my least favorite songs of all time. <laughs> I hate that song, and it brings me back to high school where like whenever there was a talent show, somebody inevitably would get on stage, one of the girls would sing that song, and I just would like leave the auditorium because I couldn't deal with my my distaste for that song. I. I I don't know. I have an aversion to it, but the long and the short of it is it reminded me of that. And that like seventies disco thing. I, I, I I couldn't get into this track. And I just like, every time it was on, the only thing I could say is thank God it's only two minutes and 37 seconds, (laughs) like every other song on this album. Um, But it's, it's, I just couldn't wait for it to be over. This one did not click with me. Yeah, I, I get it. I mean, I find that like, when, when you're kind of like listening to the kind of like, in-depth music that we typically listen to like Davy songs are probably going to be the least interesting to us because they really are kind of kind of simplistic I guess um and and like I said earlier kind of aimed at a, a specific audience but um yeah I mean agree to disagree I I always kind of enjoyed that that tune um 
I, I, my favorite Davy song of all time was from their second album, uh, called, uh, it's called Hold On Girl, and it has def, some definite, like, Doors-esque kind of vibe to it, which I really like, um, but, uh, so I, I'd be remiss in not mentioning that, but, um, yeah, that's cool. Um, I, I'm a huge fan. Always have and always will be of the next track. What am I doing hanging around? I the, knew you the, were going to say that because you were talking about the Nesmith like country thing earlier. So I had a feeling you were talking about this track. I hear two things here and I'll let you get into it in a second. One of our favorite movies is no joke. The Robin Hood Disney the Disney version of Robin Hood that came out in 1973. You and I have been talking about this for decades. To me, this sounds like the phony King of England. Like I couldn't believe it. And then if it's not that it's Johnny cash. And like, when you put those two together, that's what you have here, which is really just like a country favorite. Um, I, I could not believe what I was hearing because to me, it sounded like a, 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 the perfect blend between those two things that I mentioned Um not my favorite track, but I definitely enjoyed it, and I thought it was like a nice contrast to some of the stuff that came before it and, and the stuff that would come after it, for sure. Well, it's been a year or so, and I want to go back again. And if I get the money, well, I'll ride the same old train. But I guess your chances come but once, and boy, I sure missed mine. And still I can't stop thinking when I hear some whistle crying. What am I doing hanging round? I should be on that train and gone. I should be riding on that train to San Antonio. What am I doing hanging I, 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 I've always, I don't know something about this song. I cannot believe that this was like a song that was on the radio at one point. This is one of them, probably the, I think I would say after Pleasant Valley Sunday, it might be the most well-known song from this album and couldn't sound more different. It's a, it's a straight up country rock song. Um, I love the the twang of the Mike's guitar. I think that the bass line is super noticeable and really catchy. Um, and and Mike's vocals are, are fantastic. And I, I I think that the the lyrics are, are tell this fun story, or maybe not fun, more so I guess kind of this 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 feeling of of regret or whatever. But um, I. I, I this was kind of like my start of my love of this Mike Nesmith country rock kind of thing that he, if it was his choice, the this would be the what the monkeys would have sounded like all the time. And um, I mean, like I said, some of my favorite, favorite songs are these ones that he either wrote or he chose to, to sing or, or play guitar to. And I, I, I think this is just a, a great tune. What are your thoughts on, on this next track? I believe it's called Peter Percival Patterson's Pet Pig Porky. I'll let you have the floor. Well, his Pet Pig Porky love pie. He love pizza pie, pumpkin pie, <laughs> pineapple pie, peach pie, minced tarts. Um, 
I, when I was a kid, this this tickled me to to no end. I mean, it clearly it's hysterical. Was, yeah, it, it's it's total like Peter's just kind of persona is just this goofy kind of guy. And um, I, as a kid, because I always listened to this album like as it was meant to be heard, like I just kind of thought of it as the intro to Pleasant Valley Sunday, as as odd as that might be. But it's just kind of a goofy little thing, and. Um, the the monkeys kind of did that kind of thing. It's on the previous album too. There's like these little, there's Zilch and there's Band Six, kind of these just little interludes that are are just there to kind of fill a little spot. Um, but it also kind of gets Peter's voice on the album because he doesn't sing leads on on any of the songs on here. Which he's not. He's probably like the least technically sound, technically proficient singer of the four. But I have a soft spot for him and he actually wrote um the song for pete's sake which would end up being used as the the outro music to the second season of the tv show the producers love that song so much he didn't sing it but he wrote it um so this will give peter a little bit of his due on on this one simply put i'll have what he's having i i love <laughs> pie too and uh a quirky little track if you will um before you get to Pleasant Valley Sunday, which is uh, another song of the week candidate. This this is just a fantastic, fantastic tune. I may have heard this when I was a kid. I probably did, and if I yeah. didn't, or if I did, and I maybe I don't realize it. Really, really great guitar riff. Uh, the percussion here is really one of the things that stands out to me, and some of the best drum fills, believe it or not, on the album. Beautiful verses, catchy choruses, amazing vocal harmonies, and and cool backing vocals. Um, about midway through there's actually like a little guitar riff that mirrors the vocals which i think is kind of cool um a really really awesome song and 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 one of the better ones on the album in my opinion she's gray she's proud today because roses are in blue mr green he's so serene he's got a tv yeah this is one of my all-time favorite monkeys tunes um and typically i tend to gravitate towards the ones that are that weren't as like radio popular but this one i mean it deserved to be on the radio this was a uh, collaborative effort between jerry goffin and carol carol king of all people wrote a bunch of songs for the monkeys and she co-wrote this one and uh it definitely kind of has that kind of carol king kind of vibe to it you can tell i mean the songs that that neil diamond wrote for the monkeys sound like you would think of a neil diamond song like you know i'm a believer and um those kind of tunes like um it's kind of cool how some of the so- the the more well known musicians like you can hear that influence being that they helped write uh write the song um 
you know, they were looking for like an opening riff that kind of gets you right into it. Like, you know, the Beatles had with Day Tripper or Paperback Writer. And I think that's kind of where they wanted to have something really catchy to just kick right in. So like whenever I hear that, the, the riff that opens the song, I just get instantly excited because it's just an awesome riff. And it, it leads into this like really, I think just this really upbeat and fun song. Um, and again, like good lyrics, like, you know, the, a lot of these lyrics, even cuddly toy, like if you, if you kind of like delve into the, the, you know, the nuances of what they're trying to say, it's not, it sounds like a, it's a kid's song, but kind of not really like, uh, you know, and salesman too, like, and this is like another one kind of like this song kind of has like a, a Stepford's Stepford wife kind of, kind of vibe to it. Um, Wait till we get to star collector. Yeah. Well, that one's just, that one's not subtle. Um, <laughs> no, that's but, uh, yeah, the, I, I, I'm a big fan of, uh, big fan of the song too. I completely agree. Uh, brings us to Daily Nightly. Uh, another, uh, another song with the Moog synthesizer is very, very strong. And I actually think it makes this entire track. Uh, it starts with like a little bass line, which I thought was cool. And, and then some psychedelic screams. Uh, sorry. It's like there's some psychedelic parts here that just scream like pure reason revolution to me, which, as a fan of, of them, I could not get enough of this track. Uh, I, I think that it's. Sh- I, I think this is really a testament to Nesmith's influence and thumbprint on the band, and I could see why he would obviously go on to have such a successful solo career. Um, I don't love the vocals here, but that being said, the, the Dolans I think starts screaming at the end, which is kind of. A nice little touch. It's, it's this track has a lot going on, but I thought it was it's one of my favorites on the album. Yeah, this has been a long time favorite of mine as well, and it's even more hilarious when you find out that Mickey Dolan's did not have a clue what he was doing on the Moog synthesizer. He was just pushing buttons and trying to make it as creative as possible. And, and uh, Peter Torque did an interview saying that like he thought that it was pure magic what he was doing on here versus, you know, in star collector where they have, um, they have Paul Beaver who was, um, and I swear I thought that said Paul bearer when I first read it, but, um, (laughs) Paul, Paul Beaver was, you know, was trained in being able to play this. And, and Peter thought that that kind of sounded kind of not as fun because he was just playing it like a weird sounding keyboard. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, Mickey got like all psychedelic and wacky and, and, and had some fun with it. And I think that's what makes the song so memorable. Um, along with that, that, that baseline that leads up to the different verses, you know, do, 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 like it's, it, it's definitely a, a memorable song. And, and, um, one of the times that I saw the band live actually was at that beacon show that I mentioned before, uh, since they didn't have a Moog synthesizer, um, I can't remember. It was either Mickey or Mike were just making weird sounds into the microphone to like recreate the song, which was entertaining in and of itself. But uh, yeah. And, and I agree. Like, I love that part at the end where he really kind of shouts out that, that last part. And, and again, like this is Mike Nesmith kind of showing that um, he's, I think the best uh, lyrical, you know, song lyrics writer in the band. Cause it's just, it's real heady stuff. I think when you really dig into it, it would probably, I don't think this song made a, a, a lick of sense to me when I was a kid. I can understand why. Um, what are your thoughts on don't call on me, which is the penultimate track here. Um, this was one that kind of grew on me more as, as the week 
turned on and I'll get to the details as to why, but what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, this is um kind of a like you know, all these all these Nesmith tunes that we've heard so far are all kind of like these rock and you know, rock and tunes. Um maybe not so much Love is Only Sleeping, which is kind of more of a mid-tempo, but this is this is like Mike Michael's only kind of ballady kind of tune on the album. Very like kind of atmospheric and and kind of um mellow um i like it um it's not my favorite song on the album but um i don't really dislike any of the songs on this album and uh i think it it makes for a good kind of second to last song i think it would have been kind of a kind of like a letdown if the album finished with this i think they chose to go with a way more kind of like like histrionic kind of like bombastic wild nutty kind of song um which they certainly did so this was kind of just calming things down before the 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 finale i guess this had like a jazzy almost like reign of kindo vibe to me which spoiler we may be hearing uh, another band that we may be hearing about sooner rather than later on the podcast but it's it's to me that Peter Tork's organ is what makes this track. It was kind of interesting how it kind of starts at this bar scene and you hear like kind of like the restaurant, and the waiters or something going on in the background and then goes into the, the, the song itself. Um, I, I like this song. Apparently it was a pre Beatles song that Michael Nesmith had kind of constructed prior to his time in the band. And then he actually just put it on the fourth album, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. I, 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 you get, there's so many stories like that with some of these, songs that you know i mean uh, nesmith really was like a, a true musician before he even you know be ended up in the in this band so uh it's not surprising that he probably had some things kind of floating around in his head uh leading up to this and i'm sure even when that first album came out there were songs that he was just dying to to get out there and he was just biding his time to gain more influence and, and um you know, he was a fiery guy. Like he, he, he wanted, uh, he punched a hole in the wall next to one of the producers and said, you know, that could have been your face. Um, because he just was sick of, of everybody kind of telling them what they, what to do and kind of, uh, you know, kind of doing what would be like the negative view of them is that they had no autonomy. Um, and that they were just controlled by their corporate overlords and they didn't want to be viewed that way. They wanted to have, they wanted to have some freedom and, and show what they could do. And, and I think that this album and the preceding album show that, you know, uh, there, there was, there was a lot of meat on the bone without having, you know, a producer to pick all the songs and choose all the songwriters and, and, and make all the decisions for them. It's, it's fascinating to me what was going on behind the scenes and then trying to just break away from, the stereotypes, I guess, that had been cast on them. Uh, really, really interesting. As we mentioned, the, the, the album ends with Star Collector, which is obviously a, a call to the groupies uh, that were, I guess, following the band around or, or, you know, kind of fitting given the subject matter of, you know, what's going on here. Um, this is kind of the epic track on the album, if you will. It was the, It's the last song. It's the longest song. And even though I kind of want to hate it, there's a lot here to like. Uh, the organ and the mood are, are both great. Um, it's almost like video game soundtrack-ish in the way that certain things are employed. Uh, a bit repetitive, but an amazing bass line. And the outro is fantastic. The drumming at the end of this song is fast and it is heavy. Like 
heavy, heavy, heavy for 1967. Yeah, this was, uh, I think this kind of, I mean, I don't know if it's between this and Daily Nightly for the, uh, the, the psychedelic song of the, the album. Cause they, like this guy, uh, th- this guy, Paul Beaver just like, just starts to go crazy on, on the synthesizer. And like, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's definitely, um, I, I think the, the instrumental parts are more impressive than the, the lyrical parts. Um, I thought it was interesting that they chose, um, Davey to sing this song because he probably was the most sought after by groupies <laughs> of in the band. Um, I probably know probably about it. He definitely was. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a wacky kind of tune to kind of like end things, end things off. But I mean, like I said at the, at the onset, I mean, there's not really a lot of like cohesiveness from song to song. It's just kind of like, I think that it could be argued that, that it's, it's choppy, but I just think it, it shows that the band has so many different, uh, like avenues that they can go musically and, and they choose to just, instead of choosing one, they choose all of them and be like, we'll do a pop song here and a psychedelic song here and a country song here and, uh, and talk about a pet pig named Porky here. So, <laughs> you know, it's, that's just kind of what the monkeys were, were all about, especially after I think those, um, especially after those first two albums and they started to kind of um, have, you know, more of their own uh, say in, in what was going on. Yeah, and, and we talk about the two tracks that didn't make the album, right? Daydream Believer would become one of, if not their absolute biggest hit. To me, it sounds just like a Neil Diamond song. I mean, like a feel-good song that may as well have been on on one of the classic Neil Diamond's records, an iconic chorus that will always forever be known to me as just the Sleepy Jean song, just because that's the way I knew it, you know, from when I was a kid. Um, and unlike... Um, Unlike earlier in the album, I think that the brass section here is actually fantastic and it just doesn't take over the track, but provides a nice kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, accompaniment piece to the rest of the song. And then we had discussed going down earlier, which is like a scat song, which I was not expecting. And one of the most intriguing B-sides, I guess, that I've heard because I just wasn't expecting it. It was a faster tune, lots of brass, lots of saxophone and very progressive in a way because you have different time signatures. Um, it would probably be the song I would want to play again the most, even though it wasn't my favorite track, just because there was so much going on here and so much to digest. And I would argue it was Mickey's best vocal performance, uh, like a real toe tapper. Yeah. And he played it when I saw them two months ago. And like, you would never know the dude was, I guess, what is he in his early seventies now, mid to early to mid seventies. And he slays that song. It's impressive. And uh, I remember the first time I heard it, I was, it was mind boggling to me that a song could sound like that. And and, uh, it's amazing to me that it wasn't on an album. Like it was supposed to be on this album, but like they were pretty strict about like, from what I read, it was like, you need to fill 12 slots of songs. So if you put in one, something else is going to come out. And I guess the fact that, it was included as a B side with uh, daydream believer kind of made it one of the odd, the odd ones out. And like I said, they kind of saved daydream believer for the, the following following record. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, that, uh, that pretty much uh, sums it up. I, I'm sure I was incredibly 
long-winded, but I could assure you I could have said a lot more. <laughs> well, I want to hear your song of the week before I select mine. I, I, I've, I've chosen it. I, I have reasons for why I chose it, but I want to hear your song of the week first. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it's hard. Um, it, it probably would be between door into summer, what am I doing hanging around and Pleasant Valley Sunday? Um, I'm going to go with what am I doing hanging around just in honor of, you know, Mike Nesmith who who passed away last week and uh, pretty much the reason that, that we're doing this. And, and um, it's just uh, to me, I think it's definitely the most well-known monkey song that he was the vocalist on. And I think it kind of reminded it's there to remind people that Mickey and Davey weren't the only ones that were, that were the talented singers in this band. Uh, this was a, I a, a, a three headed monster as far as vocalists go. And, and, you know, Peter, when he gets in there can hold his own too. But, um, that's the one that I would go with, but I mean, on any other day, it could be the other ones, uh, especially door into summer, which, um, has really, really grown on me over the years. And, and there's a really, really, excellent version of it on the um they they released a mickey and mike uh live album i think it came out last year or maybe earlier this year who knows the last two years feel like the last 15 years but um Hmm. i really like the version the live version of it shows how uh how good that they both still were um as vocalists and and i I can tell you like anytime i've seen the monkeys they've had a huge band that does the the 95% of the heavy lifting musically. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the monkeys really were about the voices. That's what I think people knew them. They, they, when they first started, they were known by their voices and they were known by their faces. And, um, I just don't know that anybody was really too concerned with who was playing the instruments. Like they just liked the songs and they liked who was singing them and they liked the antics from the TV show. And I think that's what matters. And I think that, you know, cynical, you know, cynical, uh, critics, uh, you know, glossed over that because they probably wanted to be, you know, you know, the smartest guy in the room or whatever and say, Oh, they're not a real band. But, you know, I, I think that the fact that you, listen to this for the first time, you know, what, you know, 40, 50 years later. And, uh, and, it, and I've assumingly sounded like you enjoyed it. I think that says something for, um, the, the quality of the music. And then that, that this band isn't just a gimmick. As yeah, no, totally. And again, I, I acknowledge that, that most of the songs are not really written by the band members, even though obviously they contributed their parts here and there. Um, but I enjoyed it, uh, for sure. Um, my song of the week is Pleasant Valley Sunday. I'll save you the trouble of having to choose between uh, that and some of the others that you mentioned. Um, I thought it was just top to bottom the best song on the album, and I can see why it was a tremendous radio success. Um, I just want to tell one story before um, we close out and we rate the album and move on to, to what we're doing next week and whatnot. Funny story. Uh, junior high school, math teacher, one of those you know kind of quirky – math teachers that, you know, really just uh, loves music, probably wants to be playing music and doesn't want to be teaching algebra. But alas, here we are. Asks the class, um, does anyone know any Beatles songs? I'm going to give you extra credit if you can name a Beatles song. Kid in the back of the room raises his hand proudly because he knows a Beatles song and he's getting extra credit. So the teacher calls on this kid and says, 
all right, you know, I, I forget the kid's name, Johnny. What what is what is the name of a Beatles song for extra credit? And he says, "Hey, hey, we're the monkeys." No joke. <laughs> um, that is a true story, and um, makes me laugh even to this day. Well, close enough, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, scale of one to ten, what are you rating this? Uh, I I I mean, just for complete nostalgia's sake it's it's a 9.0 for me i mean it's just uh to me it's the height of of what this band was was about and for me it's it's probably it's probably my favorite album they've ever done again that could change depending on what kind of mood i'm in there's songs that i absolutely love that are on those first two albums and i don't mean to kind of sweep those under the rug and there's songs that i love on the 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 albums that came after this um and there's some of the best monkey songs ever come from the, the, the head soundtrack, which was an absolute box office disaster. Um, but also um, each band member um, sings one song. And I think all four songs that were on um, that head album are some of the monkeys best works. And then they would release two more albums um, without Peter which I think were really just kind of like, like I said before, they dug into the archives and re-recorded some older stuff. And I think in one case they just used a, a track they had laying around as as it was. And uh, and then in 1970 they would release their last album for 16 years called uh, Changes, and it was literally just um, Mickey and Davey by themselves. And then um, they wouldn't make another album again until. I guess they felt like there was a demand when that eighties revival kicked in and, and they decided to release an album. Mike Nesmith didn't uh, participate. Um, and, and what a lot of people don't know is that Mike Nesmith's mother invented whiteout. So he, I did not know that. So he was, he had her, you know, he was, he had all of her, her, her earnings, her wealth from inventing liquid paper um, so he pretty much after the monkeys did whatever he wanted and, and, and he didn't need to go back to the monkeys for a, a quick payday. And, and he didn't until much, much later, he would, he'd record with them. They'd release an album in 1996 with him. And that would be his first time, uh, you know, doing anything with the band in a long time, other than like, I think a one off he came out and sang one song, I think during the 1986 or 87 tour, uh, out in California. But, um, yeah, this this album it was kind of where I think the band kind of was starting to just they were at the end of the peak and this after this it was just starting to kind of crumble and, and you know you talk about the Beatles you know the Beatles star shined bright for a short time I mean they their first album came out in what 1962 and Let It Be came out in 1970 and in eight years they were gone the Monkees were around for about three to four three really good years, four years active, and that's it. it um, the Beatles were 63 to 70. It was in and out, and then obviously very successful solo careers uh, You know, after that. Um, for me, I certainly appreciated it, and I, like I said, I listened to the hell out of this album this week. It's a 6.5 for me just because I don't have the nostalgia, but it was better than I anticipated because I thought it was going – I wasn't sure what to expect. The reason I don't go higher though is when I when I think back to like Sgt. Pepper 
or the White Album. But, you know, those are such great records that they just, in my opinion, they have to be higher up. So I had to knock this down just based on its like the counterpart here because you have just pure magic with some of those albums. But I understand the allure and I, I, I don't think of them as the joke that I guess I kind of thought about, you know, prior to, you know, delving deep. And it makes me want to go back and listen to some of these other um, albums later on in their career just because, you know, there's there's some good stuff there. And that's, if nothing else, that's what this week kind of did. It made me want to go back and listen to stuff instead of just, you know, listening to new albums that come out, you know, going back and listening to some of that Stones material or listening to Beatles stuff that I haven't heard in a while. So it served that purpose for sure. So excellent choice. And, and thank you very much for that. Yeah, well, you know, if I can convert one person, then my job here is done. Very well, very well. Uh, a couple of news items before we get into next week's album. Um, Destruction is has just announced their new album, which is coming out next April, on April 8th. Uh, it's called Diabolical, and I look forward to hearing that. I, I have recently become quite a big fan of the band. I like their last album a lot, um, so I look forward to that. And uh, Beast in Black, who was scheduled to and and still looks to be touring with Nightwish in May of next year, apparently has released tour dates with both Stryker and Seven Kingdoms. They're doing a full run of U.S. shows, which um, they're headlining from April 7th uh, until May 2nd. So doing about a month of headlining shows across the U.S. Nowhere near me, unfortunately. So I'm just going to have to settle for them opening for Nightwish. Um, I love that band. I, I, I do hope that they come back to New York City or somewhere around here and headline. Yeah, I was surprised to see that they were um, ready to do a, a headline tour. I'm curious how it does. I mean, I don't know where they kind of um, land for most people um, in comparison to my personal love for that band. Um, so, you know, what I think may not represent who's going to buy tickets to their show, but um, I, I hope for the best. And I hope that they decide to add some more shows closer to us because like you said as much as i'm super psyched to see them open for nightwish i would really like to uh see them put on a full uh a full set of because you know they only have three albums and there's just a ton of stuff that i know that's gonna be left off when they play open for nightwish so i'm gonna be like damn it like as, as awesome as that was i wish i wish i could have heard another 40 minutes of songs inevitably we're going to be disappointed but still looking forward to that it'll be cool to finally finally see them live um just to kind of set the table for the next couple of weeks uh next week will be the last episode of the year uh we'll release that next monday it'll be my choice i'll get to that in a second we have our uh fan choice for the first week in january and then our long-awaited best of 2021 will be coming out the following week. So the second week in January, uh, we have a nice long episode for you where we discuss our best of uh, the year. And we're going to do things a little bit differently this year, um, not just talking about the best albums, but we have some other awards that we'll give out as well. So that should be fun. I'm looking forward to that. And then uh, by the third week in January, you'll get to pick an album for uh, kicking off next year. So I look forward to that. Um, in terms of what we are doing next week, uh, after listening um, to, to Star Collector about six times, I realized that we've not done Steel Panther. And I feel like we would be remiss not to do Feel the Steel. So we're going to have a little fun next week. 
a little lighthearted uh, comedy when we go back to uh, 2009 and we, we talk about Steel Panther. How have we not done this after over a year of this? I don't know, but this might be our first uh, rated R episode. <laughs> yeah, we the parents uh, or kids, you have to get your parents' permission. You can't even, you can't even read the titles of the songs without, like... <laughs> being offensive to somebody so. yeah yeah I, I we'll put a disclaimer out there before we start but i think it i think it's definitely worth a discussion and um definitely have some stories there as well as 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 i've had the pleasure of seeing them live twice and that was an experience all the same so we'll get to that next week um excellent choice chris i i, I thank you again for picking the monkeys i Definitely never expected to do an episode on this, but it was fun. Maybe we'll go back down the Beatles rabbit hole at some point in 2022. Um, but until then, uh, obviously, uh, have a happy holidays. We'll talk uh, during the week, and we'll we'll come back with some Steel Panther next week. Well, don't don't think you've gotten off light because we're not done talking about the monkeys this week. So uh, stay tuned for that. But um, we probably are going to have a, a little extra uh, extra bonus episode coming up uh later in the week um i'm fairly certain we are as far as long as uh we don't re- have any technical difficulties well now, now you're just giving away all the surprises yeah we have a couple of surprises in store um for this week and then next monday we'll we'll release our our, our steel panther episode which i'm looking forward to for a completely different set of reasons but uh, enjoy the week i will talk to you sooner rather than later and uh thanks everyone for listening we appreciate it yep have a good one buddy